This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, Claim of Privilege, A Mysterious Plane Crash, A Landmark Supreme Court Case, and The Rise of State Secrets, our guest today, Barry Siegel, unfolds the shocking true story behind the Supreme Court case that forever changed the balance of power in America. Siegel, a Pulitzer Prize-winning former national correspondent for Los Angeles Times, directs the literary journalism program here at UC Irvine, where he is a professor of English. He is the author of six books, including three volumes of narrative nonfiction and three novels set in imaginary Chumash County on the central coast of California. Barry Siegel, welcome to Weekly Signals. Nice to be with you. How are you doing today? What's it like up in Sherman uh, Oaks? I don't know. I just finished my first cup of coffee. haven't looked outside, but I see a lot of sun here. Oh, that's <laughs> very good. Now, whereabouts? In, I'm not asking for your address, but whereabouts in Sherman Oaks? I'm fairly familiar with the area. I'm just curious. Uh, just up in the hills, uh, up, up in the hills in Sherman Oaks, around in, in Coldwater Canyon area. Oh, excellent. So you've, you've got a little view there of sorts. We look down, we look down the valley. Uh, I like it up here in the woods here. Right. When I go down the hill, it gets a little hectic. You're a lucky man to live there. That's a nice place. Now, you're in Sherman Oaks. What brought your uh, interest to this Supreme Court case, first of all? Well, you know, I'm always, uh, a lot of the stories I've written uh, over the years have to do with uh, legal affairs. And it's not because I'm particularly I'm not a lawyer, and I, it's not that I'm approaching it as a legal question. I'm interested in questions of right and wrong. And in our in our country, secular nation, we don't we don't find out what's right or wrong by going to church. We go into courtrooms and we ask judges and <laughs> lawyers to sort this out. So I'm always looking for cases, uh, and this one caught my attention in uh, the year 2003 when. Uh, some uh, the these families of three civilian engineers who had who had died in a mysterious plane crash way back in 1948 were going back into the Supreme Court with a very very unusual petition seeking to reopen a case from 50 years ago in which they had see, sought to to sue the government for negligence. It was a very odd petition, a mysterious plane crash landmark that had led to a landmark Supreme Court case in 1953 that they now were trying to look at again. And I just thought, what is this? This seems something worth looking into. Now, why Why 2003? What did you discover? What was it about that period well, of time? Well, here's what happened. I should uh, back up just a couple of steps. Is, uh, the, to understand what happened in 2003, we should talk for just a second about what happened in, in 48. Uh, U.S. Air Force B-29 crashed uh, October 1948 over Waycross, Georgia. And three of the uh, men aboard were civilian engineers. Their widows sought to sue the government, uh, ne- charging negligence. Uh, during discovery, the government would not turn over the accident report for the crash, the Air Force accident report. Uh, litigation in this case, fighting to get that accident report, went all the way up to the Supreme Court, which in March 1953 ruled in favor of the government against the widow, saying that the government indeed did have a state secrets privilege. The government was refusing to turn over the accident report because they said it contained national security state secrets. Government said they had that privilege, didn't have to turn it over. 
the case that widows had to settle for far less than they would have gotten in, or, in a trial. Uh, what happened in, two, well, year 2000, 50 years later, uh, uh, the daughter of one of those civilians who died in the crash, uh, she was seven weeks old when her dad died, she was now a 50-year-old woman, uh, happened to be roaming on the Internet, and lo and behold, she found on a website a place where she could get a copy of, of that long-sought accident report, which had been recently declassified. Um, she got that accident report, uh, read it, saw no evidence of any state secrets at all. There was no mention of anything, of any secret equipment on the plane. What it was was a stark chronicle of military negligence. Uh, so she and the other families, that's what they did in 203. They went back into the Supreme Court uh, seeking uh, something called a petition for a writ of quorum nobis. They were essentially asking the Supreme Court to correct an error that the court itself had made 50 years before. And what they charged was that the government had committed fraud on the Supreme Court in 1953 by claiming that the accident report had state, contained state secrets. Yeah. Well, let me ask, uh, going just before 1948-49, when all this took, took place, had there been court challenges, had the imposition of, uh, of this claim of privilege, the state secrets, uh, had they been challenged in, in the courts prior to that? Before that, uh, the, the, the state secrets privilege had been a, a, an element of common law. For, for many years, for 200 years. It wasn't a new thing that it just created then. When you uh, say common law, do you mean like European law, American law? Common law comes, our common law comes out of the British system of, system of laws. And okay. what we mean by common law is essentially uh, a law that, that didn't come out of, uh, that wasn't codified, that wasn't a statute that was passed by the legislature or formally recognized by a high court. It was just case law, More accumulation of case law and tradition, tradition. inside the legal system. Uh, it was recognized, uh, I mean, it was uh, recognized as common law. What happened with, the, with this case, which is called U.S. versus Reynolds, was this This was the first time, and really the only time, that the U.S. Supreme Court was asked to, to formally consider it. And here, here in 1953 is where the U.S. Supreme Court formally recognized it, took it beyond common law, formally recognized it, and most important, set down a, 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 a set of rules about how it would be applied. This was this was probably the most important part of it. Well, I would assume in that in that ruling, when you say set set up some sort of standards in in this, that concealment of fraud or concealment of malfeasance wasn't in those regulations, right? <laughs> <laughs> what they said, and you know, the you, the you see the context is everything. One, you ask me why I got into this story. I also want to, got into this story because I want to. It was happening at the dawn of the Cold War, and then and then at the height of the Cold War, and obviously, I think that that sense of apocalyptic threat then uh, resonates today, obviously, post-9-11. Uh, a lot of the things that our judges and then the government do are, 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 are influenced by that sense of a nation being under threat. And uh, that's what was happening there. The Vinson Court, Fred Vinson was the chief justice. This was 1953, 1952-53, height of the Cold War, Korean War, Red Scare, Russia just got the bomb, Red China just been, had just been formed. Uh, they were very, they were very concerned, and they were trying to uh, 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 forge a balancing act. What they basically said in U.S. versus Reynolds is that no, the government didn't have unilateral power to just to decide what documents it could withhold. However, uh, uh, judges shouldn't automatically 
uh, demand to, to see those documents or make them be, or make the government produce them. That if the government could, and, and this was the operative phrase, if the government could prove that there was reasonable danger if these documents were produced, uh, the judges should not force the, the government to, to turn over those documents. Um, the question, of course, is, is how do you pr- how does the government prove to you to the judge that there's reasonable danger without showing the judge the documents? We're not talking about making those documents public for you and me to see. We're talking about showing the judge privately the documents in chambers uh, and, let, and letting them make a judgment. Uh, this is part of our system of checks and balances, balance of power in this country. Uh, and it's exactly what the government uh, argued that it didn't have to do in this case in the U.S. versus Reynolds. They weren't just refusing to turn over that, uh, that uh, accident report to the widows. They were refusing to turn it over to the judge, to the federal district judge in the case. It would seem that they, in these cases they should be at least required to say in what direction it threatens national security. Is there any talk about that at all? Well, yes, that's exactly what they, what they are required to do by affidavit. Uh, instead of showing you the accident, showing the judge the accident report, uh, what happened in U.S. versus Reynolds and what the judge and what the case, and what the, case uh, the Supreme Court then said you should do going forward in other cases, is a, an affidavit was signed by the, sec- the, the, the Secretary of the Air Force guy named Thomas Finletter, and by the Judge Advocate General uh, for the Air Force, guy named Reginald Harmon. They signed affidavits saying, this action report contains state secrets. That's basically, to boil it down, I don't want to oversimplify, but basically that's what they said, that that threatens national security. And they submit that document Uh to to the judge. So, and so that's, that's as far as it went. It didn't say regarding our uh, offenses in in the or, uh, Gulf of Mexico, or, re- or regarding right. the the, uh, the secrecy. I should be. We're, we're leaving. I'm leaving out one piece of it. When that mm-hmm. when the airport when the air, that Air Force uh, B-29 took off on that morning that it crashed, it was the purpose of the flight was to test some secret navigational equipment. Yeah. This was a uh, equipment being tested precursor to the guided missile program, and it was uh, it was it was drone. It was equipment so the plane could act. Uh, uh, operate as a drone and and, fl- and fly on its own and drop bombs or dive into a target thousands of miles away. This equipment was on board, and that's why the civilian engineers were on board. They were they were the ones who had yeah. been developing this equipment under contract with the RCA. Uh, so. What the affidavit said was the affidavits made reference to secret secret equipment on board, secret navigational equipment on board, or secret equipment on board. Uh, however, of course, the the problem with this is that the accident report itself made no mention of this secret navigational equipment because it had nothing to do with the cause of the crash. Uh, the cause of the crash was due to negligence, due maintenance negligence, and some confusion in the cockpit, and that's what that's what was chronicled in the accident report. So the affidavits were false. The affidavits were saying that the accident report contained information about this secret navigational equipment. Not true. We're speaking with uh, Barry Siegel. The book is Claim of Privilege, and now. Uh, up in 2003, what was the defense for the government saying about the defrauding? How how, how could they 
<laughs> How could this happen that they're not found guilty? Right. You know, that was kind of, it was kind of a hoot. In fact, I think I used the word hoot in my book at some place <laughs> at, this, at this point. Uh, this is very interesting. The gov- so the, 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 the families find a lawyer and they file this petition for a writ of quorum nobis in the spring of 2003. Uh, the government isn't even in this case at this point. It's, the, it's, the, it's these families filing a petition to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, though, in, at this moment, in, in turn, uh, decides to invite the government's participation. It's not automatic. They they ask the, the uh, solicitor general if he if he care, invites the solicitor general to file a response. Uh, of course, when the court invites the solicitor general to file a response, the solicitor general doesn't decline ever. <laughs> well, th- is and is this uh, the court tipping its hand here a little bit? Uh, it's. What I what I really think it is is it's a pattern that's developed in the recent years in the Supreme Court to turn to the Solicitor General uh, for advice in a sense. What do you think about this claim? Uh, they've done it. The court Supreme Court has done it much more often in recent years than in the past. This is when Teddy Olson was the Solicitor I, General. I was just going to bring that up. It's it's no secret. It's no accident. That Ted Olson was the Solicitor General during this period of time, is it? Exactly. Yeah. Olson was the Solicitor General, and they turned to him. And of course, his, as uh, most of your listeners know, his wife uh, yeah. uh, died in the cra- right. in not nine eleven attack on the, right. on September eleventh. Uh, he obviously has an investment in it. And, and Olson is also one of the found one of the mover shakers within the Federalist movement. Within the Federalist movement, which is a which is an imp- really a, a very strong state interest in controlling information. Uh, Precisely. So I tell you, Olson was. It was interesting that he got in. It was invited, but the court had had been increasing, increasingly during his tenure was turning to the solicitor general much more than they used to in these kind of cases and in inviting their response. And in answer to your question, uh, what would then happen is I don't know if it's tipping hand or not, but it just by coincidence maybe. But in seventy five percent of the cases, then the government, the Supreme Court, would go along with what the solicitor general uh, uh, said in their briefs. Pretty good track record. Pretty good, doing well. And in this brief, Teddy Olson actually really, when I say Teddy Olson, I mean in all fairness, he's, his signature is at the bottom of the brief, but of course someone in his office drafts the brief. But their argument was astonishing, really. What, what they're, they're, first of all, they argue a couple things. They, they argue basically that l- looking back now, we couldn't possibly know these many years later what, what, the, what troubled the Air Force, uh, the military, about, this, about the accident report back in 53. We don't know what was the violation of state secrets and national security. We, we've got to leave it to them. They're much more capable than we are uh, of, of uh, understanding the import. Um, but they also made another argument, which was <laughs> my jaw dropped when I read it. They argued that, in fact, back then the government never claimed that there were any state secrets in the accident report. <laughs> they flat out argued that. They said that there, that wasn't what the argument was at all, that, in fact, the, the military government was just concerned in general about not about about uh, uh, B twenty nine operation of B twenty nines that the B twenty nines had a, had a tendency for their engines to catch fire and uh, had other mechanical problems and uh, we they didn't want the enemy the Soviet Union to uh, learn anything about these problems. Well, what's important about this is that the problems of the V twenty nine. I I went and looked. You can go look today and go see that these problems were written about on the, at that time on the front page of the New York Times. They were 
the fleet of B-29s had been grounded because of their engine fire problems. And on top of that, the Soviet Union had built their own copycat B-29s that, uh, based on um, on B-29s that had, had, had landed in the Soviet Union during World War II. They built their own copies, and their copies had the same fire engine problem. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and so <laughs> this argument amazed me. It did. <laughs> that is an amazing <laughs> story, yeah. that part. Now, now, how did it come out in 2003? What what finally happened to the to the case? Well, uh, I wish I could tell you that that the the families of these of these engineers prevailed, but uh, they fought it up to the uh, the the first the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court uh, denied their initial petition for a quorum nobis, uh, a writ of quorum nobis. Uh, the families then circled back around and took it into federal district court and into the uh, third. Third Circuit Appellate Court trying they, to trying to come back up. They obviously appealed on different grounds. Yes, they were they were approaching it in a different way. They were trying they tried to do something very dramatic by going straight to the Supreme Court, and that's actually very unusual and rare because the, you're, that's not a Supreme Court is, is almost always considering a, a decision made by a lower court. And what they were trying to do is get the Supreme Court sitting now to, in a sense, review act as an extension of the Vincent Court. When that failed, they 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 chose another uh, uh, legal path and tried to come back up, and they had hearings in federal court and. Uh, in the, in the Third Circuit, and I'll tell you something. Those opinions, which I've read, they and they and they did not prevail in either one of those. They were both they were turned down. And I've read those opinions many times. And of course, I I spent five years in this book, so I confess I do feel I know more about this case than the than the judges do. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not saying I'm smarter than about the law. I know I know about this case, and I know that um, these judges failed to they could not possibly have reached the decisions they did if they had absorbed the entire record in this case there's no way that they could uh believe that in 1953 the government did not say that there were state secrets right. in this accident report it's simply i believe in shades of gray and ambiguity i see most things in terms of shades of gray this is not shades of gray the government said there were state secrets in that accident report but I'll tell you something was very positive. That sounds like it was a negative, sort of a negative ending for the families, but it, it really wasn't because their real goal in this case was to get the story out. They were so angry and so upset when they found out that the government had lied to them and to the Supreme Court that their real goal, and they kept saying it to each other in a series of letters and emails, is that what we really want to do is get this story out. And that's what they started to do over and over. There were many, many, many news stories and TV shows about them. Of course, my book is evidence that they got their story out, too. You know, claim of privilege tells that story. Uh, and one key result of this is that there is now legislation pending in Congress, uh, in, bo- in both the House and the Senate, that would regulate use of state secrets privilege, force judges to look at the underlying documents before they ruled. So, uh, to my mind, these, these families uh, were victorious in what they set out to do. Is there something else at play here, just beside, say, the judge's uh, ignorance? Is there is there some other reason that they made the decision that they did outside of of, of the evidence? Sure, I think that I mean it's not, not just these judges in this case, but judges uh, and uh, judge all judges who hear state secrets privileges. Um, 
uh, are obviously just like the judges back in the Cold War are deeply concerned about the uh, consequences of their decisions. Uh, we, let's not simplify this. We, we live in a you know a perilous era. Uh, when the government says that if you rule that with these documents must be produced, you are th- you are threatening national security. That's pretty heavy. Uh, that's difficult, and uh, most judges want to duck that responsibility. And I, when I say duck, obviously that's a loaded word the way I say it. But in fairness, it is hard. Uh, but it's their job. It's their responsibility. Uh, they, they would rather defer to the government. They would rather defer to the government than to take on the, that responsibility. But in doing so, uh, they undercut the system of checks and balances that, that is at the heart of our system. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. That is their job is to challenge the other two branches of government, not to capitulate. We're speaking with Barry Siegel. Uh, the book is Claim of Privilege, a Mysterious Plane Crash, a Landmark court, Supreme Court Case, and the Rise of State Secrets. To what extent, and it's, it's probably impossible to know, but to what extent are these claims made of privilege these, uh, uh, regarding people wanting information that are nothing but an attempt to cover up malfeasance or negligence on the part of the government? Do you have any idea or sense of what that's what that? Right, you know, we, you know, that's of course that's a great question, and of course that's what makes uh, this particular story that I tell and claim a privilege so so particularly compelling, and it's the reason I got into it is that here was the one chance, the one chance we've had yeah. to pull back to look under the hood a little bit <laughs> yeah. at the case. I mean, normally what happens in these cases is that they claim state secrets, and that shuts down the litigation. That blocks the litigation because you can't get the documents, the plaintiffs can't make their case, or the government or the judge just throws it out, and bam, you, you're done. Uh, and, you can, and you never can know. So it's not, it's, it's, it, it, the very fact of what happens makes it impossible to answer your question. However, you know, your question is so good, you don't know. What, happens, what happened in this particular tale that I tell is that uh, for, the, for the first time, the only time really we get to pull back the covers and look, under, and look, and look inside and see what, see what the what what the what what was really contained, and we're doing it in the granddaddy of all cases, the right. one that set the landmark precedent. Right. Uh, very, well, very, very informative, revelatory. Well, well I, I'm not a I'm not an expert in the law, but I can. Doesn't this feel like it's uh, stepping towards uh, the uh, the suspension of habeas corpus, and that you see what's going on with the prisoners at Guantanamo who are unable to get the information. Uh, regarding their charges uh, as to why they're there, isn't this in that same? Isn't this a cousin of that sort of idea? No, no, no a- absolutely. In fact, the principle U.S. versus Reynolds is the bedrock of national security law, and it is absolutely this the, the the claim the national security claims that are that are enabled by U.S. Reynolds that give the government the power to do what they're doing at Guantanamo and habeas corpus. You're, this is this is absolutely a result of that of that ruling, and the ruling gives gives them a legal foundation. What's really encouraging a little bit now, though, we shouldn't do, do, just rail at the judges for their failures. You talk about Guantanamo, you talk about habeas corpus. Just this past month, yeah. we've seen two very, very important cases yeah. in which the judges said no to the government. The, the U.S. Supreme Court in June ruled that the, the Guantanamo prisoners had habeas corpus rights, uh, that the government, that the that the, that the, uh, the executive branch did not have unilateral power to hold them without judicial review, and then a little later in the month, a, a circuit court panel, uh, an appellate panel, 
ruled that a particular prisoner at Guantanamo, they looked, they they demanded to look on again under the hood of what of what of what charges put this person into the made this person a de- detainee there. They looked at them and de- and decided that they had no merit and ordered this person to be released. So that's what can happen if the judges challenge the government and insist on doing their job. In the minute, very short period mm-hmm. of time we have left. Um, May I make a suggestion uh, that uh, we look at a kind of a FISA court for this kind of stuff, the, an equivalent FISA court in terms of looking at these things with people who are civilians and, and military and looking over this uh, this kind of material before we make a decision on, on whether or not it's a state Well, that's actually, that's a very good, and your parallel there, of course, is really appropriate also. Um, you know, this is exactly what this legislation, the, the name of the bill, State Secrets Privilege Law or something like that, I can't, but the, the, there's legislation in, in the Congress pending, they've had hearings in which in which it would essentially do that. It wouldn't set up a separate court, but what it says basically is that the judges in each case, the particular judges sitting in, in hearing, hearing particular claims of privilege, would have to, would be by mandatory, would have to look at the documents before ruling. Uh, this would accomplish, I think, what you're talking about. Well, hopefully we're moving in that direction. Now, this is a remarkable story. And a remarkable book. Congratulations on this. Uh, the book is Claim of Privilege, and our guest has been Barry Siegel. Thank you very much for being here. A pleasure to talk to you this morning. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.